You are listening to The Right Collective, the music industry podcast that gives listeners an insight into how the music industry works through interviews with professionals, artists, and friends. Welcome back to The Right Collective with me, Joe Dallison. On this week's podcast, I'm joined by a woman with extensive experience in music journalism and has written for publications such as The Melody Maker, The Girls Are, and The Friendly Critic. She injects feminist theory into her writing and is always championing new emerging trends. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Nairi Ruth. Welcome. Thank you and welcome. <laughs> you can add. I hope everyone's making notes. Yeah. Lime Lizard, assistant editor, Buzz Magazine, where I started. You'll hear all about that in a minute. <laughs> and I did Transmission TV during the time I was at Melody Maker uh, and other magazines like Siren Magazine, which is an American magazine. And, um, oh, God. There was also Exit Magazine, um, which was an American magazine. Siren was around at 90s as well. Yes, and currently now the F word, which is, uh, and I try and focus feminist theory on film. And just now and again, just because you get bored with 300, you know, yeah. analyzing a song is too easy now. Uh -huh. So just because I'm teaching it and I'm expecting students to do it, I occasionally take my theory to the gym and write for the F word. Nice. So have you always been interested in creative writing? Yes. So where did the where did the thought to get into music creative writing start? Well, now since you ask, uh, writing is a form of people being able to work out themselves, make sense of their world. Uh, we didn't have Instagram, we didn't have Twitter, so my snapshot was to go away and write about it. So if I had a brilliant night in the club, I would write about it. And then when my friends came to my house to get ready, we'd start drinking and then be on the tables and someone would be reading out Nairi's report from last week. And we'd, it, you know, so it was just a natural process. And um, I didn't think about music journalism mm -hmm. at all. I was hanging in, in that period, everybody wanted to be in music or art or fashion or design or media, but it wasn't just the music crowd. The music at the clubs was, wasn't just one genre or one type. And you had people going there to dress up and to network. And that's really where I came from. So um, I used to drink in, uh, should I keep going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's going. weird it's being allowed good. to talk probably <laughs> all the time as a woman. Yeah. I only normally get this as a teacher. We'll talk more about that later. As a balanced human being, one has to wait for someone else to speak um, or to see if you've fallen asleep. It's very peculiar. Anyway. <laughs> well, no one wants to hear about me. So they all want to hear about <laughs> my will. guests. Well, I'm, I'm more about extracting information out okay. of my guests. It's very odd to be on the other side, perhaps, is I know, what yeah. I'm saying. I was going to say, this, yeah. is, this must be very strange Yes, it's all right when I'm drunk and showing off to people <laughs> when they, you know, they don't want to hear it. Yeah. But when you want to hear it, it's like, shit. <laughs> uh, so I used to drink in a pub called The Red Lion in Soho. I chose that pub because Karl Marx and Engels used to meet there. And I thought, well, if they met there, that's a cool place. It wasn't the trendy pub. But I was fascinated with magazines and there was a vintage magazine shop on the corner. Mm. So I could go there and I could spend, like you guys would spend hours in record shops. That's what I did in, in vintage magazine shops and bookshops. So eventually it would get to a stage, there was this wonderful thing in the Red Line, whether you were a famous actor, whether you were a transvestite clipper, whether you were a little London girl looking for direction, you all put money in the pot in the table and there was always enough money for a round. Mm -hmm. And eventually it would get to the point where somebody would force me to do one of my little poems. Mm -hmm. Should I do one now? Yeah, yeah, why not? So this one's called Pervert on the Train. Okay. Because at the time there were all these poems on the underground trying to educate people. All these posh people like Keats and everything. Well, I don't know if he was posh, but it's all aspiring to English lit and being something that maybe you don't feel you are. Mm -hmm. However, they they wrote about things beautifully, but I didn't see those things on the fucking trains. And I certainly didn't see them on a tube train in the morning. Mm -hmm. So I wrote my whole little book called Poems on the Underground. And this one is called Pervert on the Train. It's the only one I can remember off by heart, which is why you're getting it. 
Uh, the man on the train had a nice face, a kind of grace, like little old ladies majestically turning their magazine pages, or a cat laid flat in the sun, and then with a smile he turned peculiar, and I looked at his dick, a small lonely prick like that man. And then, thank God, I got off at Baker Street, or I may have had to flick a pervert's dick. So obviously, in a pub in Soho, when you're pissed, yeah. that sort of thing goes down well. Yeah. And I loved the attention. Absolutely loved the attention. As you can tell, now I'm warming up. <laughs> so, and everyone said, eventually, um, one of the girls, one of the local Soho girls, got a boyfriend. And he was my first experience of an androgynous, skinny, posh indie boy. What an adorable man. He'd gone to a good school and... Everybody that had some some spark, he was able to extend that spark by telling them a book they should read or uh, buying tickets for them to go to see the theatre or bringing next week, bringing that fruit we hadn't heard about. Uh -huh. It was just amazing. And there were a few people like that. And they basically said to me, right, you are going to now go to the whole far, far away to Wardle Street, <laughs> where the news agents is, and you are going to get uh, have a look and choose a selection of magazines that you like. Yeah. And uh, the specialist shop, it's it's not Wardle Street, it's not Greek Street, it's the other one. Old Compton Street. It's still there. Mm -hmm. And it has a really good variety. Another place for really good magazine variety is uh, the Brixton shop in the station. Uh -huh. And a top tip to music students, he will let you go behind the counter and browse as long as you regularly leave having bought things. <laughs> so buy something. He would let you sit there for two hours and read. He was known to all of us journalists in the 90s. We were allowed to do that. So, But this place in Soho was a similar ilk. And they said, go in there, choose a magazine, read it, you will see the gaps. You will see the gaps. Everything you talk about is covered in all these gaps and the way you talk. And then uh, write the gaps. And then look at the front, see who the people are, ring them up and ask them when their editorial is and go along with your copy. That was the only bit I didn't understand. I didn't know that you called taking working copy. Mm -hmm. But the rest made total sense to me. And uh, although there was a big amount of money in the pot on the table, I immediately did that. Mm -hmm. Because it's really, you think these things are out of your reach. I was a single mum living in London on my own. I had been left in London at 16 with two O-levels. Mm -hmm. People, I mean, I had a brilliant posh upbringing, but then you're just dumped into it. Uh, well, I mean, a nice, happy middle-class one, but ignorant parents who didn't realize how ridiculous it is to leave a 16-year-old. So, um, obviously, I always wrote and I always read and I'd had a good education. And my home life had been full of music and art and song and all that stuff. Um, and this was my one sparkling... This is my one thing that wasn't scary that was familiar to me writing. So, anyway... I did that and uh, I looked for this. It's a shame you can't see this, everyone, but it's called The Buzz. We'll get a photo of it and I'll put it on an Instagram yeah. so people can see if it. If you Google it on internet, I think people talk about it quite a lot because quite a few people came from here uh -huh. that have been that then were significant in me during the 90s. So the first person I laid eyes on was um, Push, who was the editor. And uh, he ended up being my flatmate for four or five years. And he ended up being an award-winning editor for about four or five years equally post that. He wrote for The Melody Maker. Then he started the dance magazine Music, mm -hmm. um, which really capitalized on probably Mixed Mag, I think, already existed. But this was more about... Um, the scene rather than a DJ magazine for P DJs yeah. or for people in the trade. Uh, and he started that with Ben Turner, who was actually the post boy at Melody Maker, now a multimillionaire. So, you know, but these people came later, but this was my first inkling of knowing that I could do it for myself. Adrian Boss, uh, he was the marketing manager. He ended up a very successful rock manager. Um, has earned the industry millions and is now currently head of business and cultural 
entrepreneurship at Falmouth University. He has like two awards in a row for exemplary teaching uh -huh. and whatever. Yeah. Um, and Carter were massive. They'd been um, around the circuit for about 13 years, but then Adrian came along. And with their guidance and knowledge and just Adrian being Adrian, they did. Have you heard of Carly and Stockholm Sexually? They had a top 10. They had a lot of songs. They did uh, travel to Australia. They did do the States with EMF. Uh -huh. um, and they signed to Sony. So they were they were my band. Yeah. I mean, but so, yeah, so Adrian managed them. And then there was a handful of photographers who went on to Melody Maker and NME. Uh, there was me as a writer, um, my friend Christina Cromer, she was a features editor. Well, now she's my daughter's godmother. She was with Les from Fruit Map for 25 years um, from Carter. Uh, and this was all just because some people were drunk and had sort of told me what to do. And I was naive and confident enough to do it. So I would say, which is a warning to everybody, that after 10, after a few years in the industry, if someone had told me that, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it. Yeah. So what does that tell you about the industry and how it works? There is no reassurance. There's no one going to tell you that you're brilliant. The people, by the time people are telling you you're brilliant, you're probably shit. And it's probably the sycophants that are telling you. It's a really hard game. So... I, I remember that as a very exciting moment because I followed the advice, I followed my heart, I did the work, and it worked. Yeah. And I not only made lifelong friends, but I made a commitment, you know, to writing. Then the funniest thing was I was terribly into going. I loved it because when I went to editorials, they loved my ideas. I thought they were nothing. And that to them, they were like, wow. So one of them was my friend's son was um, a South London boy and he was real little South London boy. Yeah. And we needed to keep him on the straight and narrow. And he wasn't going off, but it was about uh, ch showing him the things that he was wonderful at and letting him realize the freedom he had being a London boy having his own posse. So we encouraged him with his graffiti and he, he himself got permission to paint this playground in King's Cross. And I went to his mum's with him and we caught the bus, went and picked up his mates on the bus, sat on the top, went to King's Cross, spent all day doing this graffiti. I forgot to dig up the photos because I have photos. And I wrote this piece about graffiti in London. And, and obviously... It was really good because I hadn't had the training, hadn't had anyone to tell me how it should look. Uh, and they had no space for it. And it got cut. Um, they said we couldn't put it in. So I said, what about if I cut it? They said, okay. Well, we still haven't got space. What about if I cut it some more? Mm -hmm. And then they said, finally, we've got space for it in our first couple of pages, which is like a collection of three to 500 word pieces. Can you edit it down to that? This is still in the buzz at this point. Yes, yeah. this is the buzz. Okay. And I called it a disposable art. And embarrassingly, I have it here, and I am actually going to read it to you. America manufactured and packaged it off to London and the face, the buzz alternative in the 80s. See, I had a knack for branding already. <laughs> uh, in October 92, with Jane's Terman and Goodbye Graffiti, but New York arrived anyway, staging Rolf Harris ripoffs of this supposed disposable art. The London crews have no need for such travels while only pieces, not persons, risk being blasted or buffed by competitors. What the hell am I on about? It appears as if America, embarrassed at promoting a romantic attitude to vandalism and violence, have sought to ally with their own anarchic adventures, such as scoff to rock, tragically killed in spliffing up fight recent, and the much publicized, God, I was so cooling down. <laughs> I'm like old middle-class woman in Surrey now. It's so cute. Publicized art teacher from Rollins so they can fuck in and tidy the corners of the bed in which they already lay. London crews find teachers on their own, from their own, justified only by work experience of good reputation with disposable art. Meanwhile, restyled and sophisticated, though they let them keep the K in America, 
TR and crew moved from the South Bronx to St. John's Wood, courtesy of the Saatchis and their Neo Geo exhibition recently featured, America had at last succeeded in selling the product to the wealthy white grown-ups, and Time Out September 1987 even bought the story with Sarah Kent and Bronx Break and the beauty of their efforts. Here in London, those junkies of effort and expression are still happy with the self-satisfaction of involvement, which starts from tag names, style trials, much sketchbook swapping, through to crew crew pieces and their password promotions. For sure, London has its own language and conversation and colours, and they're not likely to encourage the interpretations of their elders and offer membership to the elite. No youthful reruns, please. It will have to be an arrest. I reckon that as long as the crews keep battling, competing amongst themselves, London graffiti will stay as disposable as its writers, who without outside influence have the chance to appreciate and personally interpret it, interpret a quality, quality of code for themselves. So then the funny thing was that Anton Brooks, who was the advertising guy at the bus, and who went on to become Nirvana's press officer, and basically all of Sub Pop's press officer, he took one look at that and he said to me, you should write for the music press. So that was your, the moment where it clicked, I should do this for music journalism. So, and shall I tell you all a big secret, children? I said, what's that? I did actually know what it was because my friend was an independent artist and he was in the Melody Maker independent artist thing, but they were a rhythm and booze band. And and so I just thought it was old fogey. And NME, I had made a living out of that with my previous husband, selling jewellery to silly punters at the back. I knew the product. So I didn't really see it as being a writer's place. Yeah, But when I did a bit of investigating, I discovered that the rock press was the place where working class writers were welcome, where you got published, you learnt your discipline, you had a regular output, you met your peers and you could move on from there. So I realised Anton had, had, a, had an idea there uh, and everybody there obviously pushed. The editor of Buzz was working at the Melody Maker. So it was really, really easy um, to see that this was the place I could go. Um, and then I had one more lucky opportunity where, uh, because I had this horrible job working two days a week in the production department for a futures magazine, uh, about oil. Um, and I actually got paid what a secretary would get in a week for two days work, getting the, getting it out overnight uh, with Reuters coming in and all that. And to be fair, it was an absolute joy because they helped me develop my personality. Because like the editor is Oxbridge man and he had a, about one o'clock in the morning, he would say, where's my beaker? Where's my beaker? And he meant his cup, you know, he wants his cup. Why has our Chinese not arrived? Yeah. And you know, he was just glorious. And he would introduce me and say, this is our revolutionary. Um, and I, we, you know, when we got drunk together, my my character really came out. But through one of those guys, I got an internship at Fashion Weekly, and uh, there was Fashion Week, and um, I went and did something with Roger Treadry, who I think now writes for the Independent. Hello, Roger. Thank you for that. And um, we went round the stalls looking at suitcases and handbags and comfortable shoes. And it wasn't what I imagined Fashion Week to be at all. And basically, when you're at the bottom in fashion, that is what you do. You might as well go and work for a newspaper and cover weddings and funerals and sit in the the local courthouse. Yeah. And to be honest, I would have done the latter if I had lived at home and had the backing. I would have loved to be a little hack first. I would have definitely enjoyed being a bitch and getting those stories. Uh, But in the end, rock and roll was like, my saviour so I was nice to it Yeah. Um, but I would have liked that opportunity so I just thought with what Anton said and with my research that I'd done and the fact that I had to be good in fashion um, I think it was Roger that said come on Larry you can write a review for the Melody Maker and you can be standing on the table reading your stupid poetry and that could be in a review you're not going to do that for Fashion Weekly 
So I went for it. By this time, Push was my flatmate. And I asked him to um, ask Everett True, the reviews editor at the time, if he'd give me a shot. And here we are, listeners. He said, no, fuck off. Well, he didn't say fuck off, but he said no with a fuck off voice. Yeah. And his reason was that I had to do it for myself because everybody else had done it for themselves. And his story was, which I told you earlier in a lecture when we were talking about changing our names yeah. in order to, to be different and maybe be a bit meaner because we actually quite like music, but it does need a kick in the ghoulies, um, that he changed his name from, I won't say what his full name is, but he changed his proper name where he wrote for sounds to Push. And then the melody maker were interested in him, but previously they've rejected him and rejected him. So it was very much for him. I did it on my own. I come from nothing. I come from running a fanzine in Norwich and being mad about music. Uh, did my history degree. You have to do it for yourself. Um, and I said, would you at least put some of my reviews on his desk then? Because I can't get into the building. The building was massive, IPC towers. I think it's actually, and ironically, registered as a sick building now. You can't go in there. Uh, we had NME. This is better. You need to know this because you probably don't even know what the broadsheet, what the new, what the press looked like when there were newspapers. But we had NME on the 25th floor, a melody maker on the 26th floor. And... Um, you know, homes and gardens, probably 20th floor. Yeah. And you, I probably told this in a lecture as well. Poor Joe. He's hearing it all again. <laughs> uh, people would get into the lift and you could have games guessing. Well, Push and I were obviously together so we could. At what magazine they were going to get out at. And with NME, if they talked in short sentences in the lift and stunk of fags, we knew they were NME. Yeah. And... Um, with Melody Maker, they were sort of like the longer sentences, semicolons, explaining, articulating the abstract, that sort of thing, um, which had come from David Stubbs and Simon Reynolds, who'd appeared, I don't know if it's Oxford or Cambridge, so I can't say, um, and they applied, they started to apply theory to all that, that electronica indie pop that had come in late 80s when people had abandoned drums for a little bit. Do you remember that period? I mean, Japan, yeah, well, you know, that they hadn't abandoned them, but there was a different thing. We, they were painting pictures with music, and there was elements of soundscapes. And from that, we, we it went on. We've got Brian Eno you know, now with his ambient stuff, and they so they were very good at that. And, and also, the um, the politics of earlier music in the 80s, um, post punk, there was a lot to write about. It was a fabulous opportunity if you were into writing do you feel like you were very lucky in the sense that nowadays there's a lot you have to not say as much and you don't have as much freedom to write and also you were you were coming up in a time where there was a lot of musical change and politics and music that you could probably get your teeth into and write about do you think that and also the fact that you know you were a woman coming up in that era that was very predominantly an industry run by males do you think you were lucky in the fact that you had that support system around you? I didn't have the support system once I was at Melody Maker. Uh -huh. That isn't because um, people are bastards. It's because it's a really tough business. Yeah. And um, they're my peer group. You know, my, my male colleagues now are embarrassed at some of the things, some of the books, some of the authors they thought were brilliant, some of their writing, um, I don't look back on anything. I look back and think, wow, I was so amazing. I love me. Yeah. So, you know, I was on a voyage of discovery and they had an agenda, which is what Everett's always talking about, or Jerry, uh, you know, have an agenda. Um, my agenda was get a life. Mm -hmm. um, but, and writing was the only thing I knew because I'd always done it. Yeah. So I would say that it's shit that there isn't the music press now. And I would say that's our fault. And I would say that we're working to change that on the music journalism module at ACM and others. And I know that sounds really naive, but 
how dare you? I'm an elder of 40 years and I fucking know what I'm talking about. Yeah. An oversaturation of Indian rock. Everybody knows somebody in the band. You know, when you go to a gig now, you will maybe go to see your friend's band and you won't bother to see the... It's not a night out anymore. It used to be. We used to dance to The Clash. You know, they're an excellent dance band. So I think that, A, there isn't the press, but there should be. If there were the writers, there would be the press. Yeah. There is, if you look at research, and you've done that with the with the re reading I've sent you, dear, that the new studies show that people like to read about all different genres. And there are your metal fans, there are people that are specific, but generally people like to know about all of them. So what we need to do is apply the subtleties and standards of music journalism to all genres. And the features, like the new artist profile, live reviews are dying. That is absolutely awful. There's a poster out there saying, keep it live. It's really, it's the most magical thing. It's how musicians learn their business, how what, what, whether their songs are working on people. It's, so I, I think I was lucky, but equally unlucky because that's the way it rolls. But yes, I was lucky and therefore I find it very hard when I'm rejected. <laughs> yeah, what strikes me from talking to you is that you were probably in a lucky situation, but you still made an effort to put yourself out there and not give a shit about what anyone what anyone says, really. Do you think there's a, a specific point where you can pinpoint where journalists got scared of writing whatever they can? Is there like a, a yes, moment? I can tell you. It was when the senior editor of Rolling Stone was sacked for giving a negative album review of a band that were on the front cover. I would say over the years, people have said to me, what do I need to do? And I've told them and they haven't done it. And then two weeks later, they haven't done it. Yeah. So now I realize I did it. Yeah. I didn't stay and get drunk and talk about how great I was gonna be. I went home and did it and nobody saw me again. I called up with one of those women when I came back to London two years ago. Yeah, I, I think caught up with her son. Our generation, ago. especially, is guilty of saying a lot but not doing that much. Yes, and complaining when it doesn't happen. I mean, yes. we're called the snowflake generation for a reason. It we does just complain me. about everything. These tutorials that we have, which are all about getting contact names, you're. I don't want to give you my contacts that have taken forty years, unless unless you're going to be good enough to be in the industry. Yeah, don't come it. to me and say I want to do a podcast. Say, look at my podcast because that's the sort of person I was. Mm -hmm. I guess it comes from DIY, punk, um, but it's equally important now in the digital age where you can do everything for yourself. Yeah. Um, yes, so when journalism becomes brand journalism, when Jim Derogatis, I don't know how to say it properly, the senior editor of Rolling Stone was sacked for writing a ne negative review of Hootie and the Blowfish. I would pinpoint that as yeah. a major point. And that's, you think that's created a wave from where we are now where there's no gatekeepers, as you said, and there's no people, there's too much saturation of the market, as you said before. But do you think that there's a way that it can be salvaged? Do you think it's just people putting their heads out above the parapet and saying, you know what, I'm going to write a negative review and if you don't like it, you can jog on? I think it's the editors and the publishers that need to allow the writers to do that. Uh-huh. I think um, uh, I went on a digital course a year or so ago and originally it was about what do you know about how to work the internet? Do you know what the names are for things and how to set them up? Do you know how to bait your readers? Do you know now it doesn't matter how clever you are, everyone else is just as clever and content is king again. Content is king. And this is what I say to myself every day. It's very exciting. Mm -hmm. Uh, at its recent couple of years. Yeah. So I would say now is the time to articulate again in words. Um, start blogs. Um, set, send your stuff out there. Because, you know, when the Melody Maker took on Stubbsy and Reynolds, they just had news reporting. And when Everett took on me and Kulkani, God, try and read Kulkani. Um without taking a breath, ha <laughs> ha, good luck with that. Um, 
or uh, Martin James. I'm not going to miss any of you. Or Carl Loban, now editor of DJ Magazine. Um, whenever it brought them in, they all thought we were completely different and mad. Melody Maker had just had a readership survey which said that their readers were 16 plus. They didn't know anything about music. Yeah. So they wanted people like me bug-eyed and excited. And people like Carl Loban, who is still very excited about music. And um, so I don't think we should be... I think there's too much, because we're so clever now, we're all deconstructionists. We can, and I teach this as well, you know, write for the brand, write for the publication, write for the target audience, which is the readership. Yes, yes, however, put your head above the parapet, and if there's enough of us and there's good editors, then it should change. I, you know, it will because people want to read content again, entertainment. Mm. Maybe in a different form. Um, electronic music is um, on an app. Yeah. And so it's in long form, which is Push's new magazine. So, um, but it's not new. It's gone, it's gone on for quite a long time now. So there's, there are people that want writers. Electronic, the Wire is another one. Then uh -huh. Neil Kukani writes for the wire. Um, the F word is a total head fuck. You've got to be prepared because they're, that's seen as a lifetime when we're dead and buried and our great, 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 great grandchildren are buried archives. So it's edited by three people. You've got to be a bitch to yourself. You've got to want to be the best in the world, which yeah. is an, a nightmare. Yeah. Um, but generally, I think we've got a chance. I think it's about flooding. Every week I went to the buzz with copy, far too much copy. I wrote about four or five pieces a week, and it was easy. I still have about 35 ideas a day. Uh -huh. um, well, there was a wonderful woman I met here who similarly has so many ideas. She's now writing them all down. Yeah, I've given her a, de a deadline of when to pick out some and do them. Actually pursue it. What was there, you know, over your journalism career you obviously went to a lot of gigs and you lot mixed with a lot of these important artists was there a moment where you thought oh my god i'm actually seeing this band live and then you look back on it now and you're like that was extremely pivotal in their career and also mine was there a moment i do think now but only since i've been teaching uh-huh uh i wouldn't as a balanced mother and friend um, I'm not allowed to talk about myself that long to remember that point for fuck's sake. <laughs> and so, and neither should I be allowed to. Um, however, thinking back, it was, I mean, I'd had a tremendous damage and then I'd had some terrible stuff had happened. And here I was surrounded by the best yeah. and I knew everybody. There were, you felt part of a community, which is what music is all about. So I remember Carter when they, they got single of the week in NME and then they suddenly had a gig at Shepherd's Bush and I was used to strolling in, just going in when I wanted, I'm on the guest list. And I got there and there were hundreds of people outside. The door was shut, security guys were saying no one could come in. And then Angus Beatty, who's part of the band thing, who, who actually I recommended to PJ Harvey to do her press, which he did. Um, he opened the door and said, Nye, and grabbed my hand and pulled me in. And that was one of the most wonderful moments yeah. of my life. Yeah. And I really felt part of it. And then the fans were all going mad. And Jim Bob was singing about granny farming in the UK and dodgy landlords. And people were moshing and having fun. And I was fucking furious and very, very upset. And Jackie, his wife of many, many years, took me to one side and said, don't you fucking blow this for us. We have been putting up with this bloody man and his music for so many years. It's really good that people are up and down loving it. Look, we want those bands there. Yeah. Because I'm like, no, this is my band and yeah. the bus's band and they don't understand. Because I related to Jim Bob, you know, he was, his mother had been a, um, a cabaret singer and she was a single mum. She lived in a council flat in Tulse Hill, which he bought when he played Reading. Um, he's, he's, you know, and he used a little bit of English or Cockney rhyme and slang with puns. Uh, but he'd been happily married, or he'd been a grown up, you know, in his heart, in, on an emotional literary, literacy level for a long time. So he was looking at the papers for stories. He was talking about homeless men being burnt alive and. 
but he was carrying it off in that English pun way. Life is a cabaret and Carter of the music. I think that was one of my lines. Um, you can tell I loved Carter. <laughs> I loving. I see the thing is I didn't realize not everyone knows a band that get to be very successful and goes up with them. Not everyone says I'm going to write for the paper and gets to write for the best paper. Yeah. Not everyone says, oh, I'm going to go and do a degree now. Oh, dear, I've only got two O-levels. But that's about not being naive and working really hard. And I realize now probably being clever. Yeah. So as a teacher, I've learned how to help people that don't have that flair. That's been my thing because I've thought how lucky I have been Yes, it's a lot of it shit. And I, comparing to my peers in music, it's not good. It's more like I come from gangster rap or something. However, I would say um, I've lost it now because I'm off with the damage, you see, everybody. I've closed up. I'm in my little shell and I'm protecting myself. It's time for a song break. Yeah. <laughs> if you, looking back on your career now, would you change anything? Yes. What would you change? I do everything I teach you. So and if so, oh if we, if we fast forward now and you get to start your career now in this moment, what would you do to make create that path? For I'd yourself? know, I'd know that. Um, so like when I did this this story with Johnny Lydon and most excellent interview, it's probably that it's really good compared to any interview I've read, and it's on the front cover when. Steve Sutherland stood right in front of my fucking face and said, we need a Johnny Lydon interview and we haven't got one. He's over here on tour. I had more than enough information and I didn't say, I yeah. froze. Yeah. So, but that's because people made me feel that I wasn't any good at what I did. And to be fair, I hadn't done a degree and I didn't know how to write longer pieces. And to be fair, you know, I probably was a poet or a songwriter and maybe I should have joined a band or something, but for my own reasons, I didn't want fame. Okay. Yeah. For the damage. Yeah. You know. Is that one of the reasons why you chose to go under the name just Nairi? No, that was Push. That was just Push. Because of his story that when he published me, he just put me in as Nairi. And then he told me his story and I kept it. And then, like, I bored with you with Joe. When I went to university, I met another Nairi horror. Uh -huh. And I had to add the Ruth because I really didn't like her. <laughs> She's stealing your name. <laughs> well, it was my beginning of understanding that feminists were all different. Uh -huh. And I didn't like this one. Yeah. Moving on to the feminist theory. Yes. How, you know, you're, from reading your writing, you do inject a lot of feminist theory into your writing, different theories and stuff like that. Was that, conscious, was that a conscious effort by you or do you think it just came naturally? It was my little manifesto, but it wasn't because I'd been to university yet. It was about I wanted to reference women artists rather than reference male artists, mainly because I didn't know their precious canon. Yeah. Um, and also I wanted to... Um, use turns of phrase like like what my mother always said or something rather than referencing that. Uh, and I wanted to focus on women artists uh, and I wanted to make sure I didn't talk about what they were wearing. You know, I wanted... Um, because at Melody Maker, it seemed to go with a typology such as goddess or enchantress or putting women up on a pedestal mm. and coming from punk um, and Lucy O'Brien will argue with this and probably ha her book will be out shortly but I didn't find punk inspiring as a woman because they seem larger than life and sex goddesses yeah. I couldn't imagine myself as one of them it wasn't till Riot Girl came along mm -hmm. I could until Bikini Kill came along with Kathleen Hanna you know then I could yeah um so um, so no, so I would have a. I would have liked to have known that there was things like readership surveys, target market audiences, the difference be between how the publisher works, the editor, and the editor works the publisher, how the marketing works with the with the advertising and the features editor. Um, I don't have any doubt about my writing. People could have helped me with my writing more, but they didn't know how to help me. Yeah. I can help you now because I've had the boring bit being a teacher. Uh-huh. Yeah, you've had the training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a literacy subject leader and I had to go on all those stupid courses. 
And all the other teachers said, Mary, please don't ask questions. Please don't ask questions. We want to go home. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, and you can now tell everybody <laughs> that that was very annoying. Do you feel like having... But Joe's benefiting from it now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, I am. <laughs> Do you feel like having that agenda in a way also gave you area for more creativity? Because when if I go down to sit down now and just say, I'm just going to write, I can't do it because there's so much you could possibly write about. But because you have an agenda in air quotes, it gives you sort of a backbone and a pathway. Do you think that helps you within your writing? I think that's the number one rule. But when you put pen to paper, you have an agenda. Whether it's a shopping list, uh-huh. an apology, it's an agenda. So if you try and see that with an essay, it's an agenda. With a, a piece of article, with you know, with a review, you you are capturing a moment that cannot be caught in any other way. It cannot be caught in a picture. It can't be caught in someone videoing it and posting it on Facebook and saying, awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs to be explained. We're working today editing people's live reviews, and it was an utter joy to, to read some of the openings, which were just so good. Yeah. Um, including your album review. I Thank you very much. <laughs> <coughs> but it's just about time. Yeah. It really is, because we don't want to read reviews. Reviews are boring. Reviews are for theatre people and food critics. We want an agenda. We want music journalism is to start a conversation, to have a debate, to give yourself reassurance. It's not, do I want to buy that thing? Do I want to go to that gig? We don't do those things anymore. We It's entertainment. Your generation finds out the news on Twitter very yeah. quickly. Yeah. I mean, that's the stats, isn't it? Mm. So, you know, when they sit down to read, they, they want a punchy short sentence. Then they want the complex sentence next. They want a word they don't understand. They want a book reference that they might have to follow through. It's about not patronizing your readership, not assuming because you know who they are, their demographic, because you know the brand of the publication they read, do not assume they're stupid. Um, and if you, if the only thing you can do is piss them off, that has started debate, conversation, entertain them. Yeah. Um, it's about being critiquing. So you don't say they're shit. You say they're shit because. <laughs> yeah. Always give a... a- with uh, use an your own agenda. Yeah, exactly. You know, I can tell you about the history of women writers in the music press, okay? Because I didn't realize this at the time until I grew up and went to work for Lucy O'Brien at the University of Creative Arts, who has written that Madonna book um, and is currently writing a book with skin. From Skunk and Nancy. From Skunk and Nancy. So, um, and I wanted to get the job. And I'm a massive fan of Lucy. So um, now I haven't got the chance to do this as a guest speaker, world. <laughs> um, but I did it anyway. See what I mean? Yeah. You just do it anyway. And who knows who would want you to what do this now? Someone yes. might be listening to the podcast and want yes. you to do it. So and invite me to your university to read. <laughs> um, so this is about the changing role of women writers in music criticism. Okay. I would say it was a boys' club. Women writers did not feel part of the the team. We had pressure to have the knowledge of the canon. Um, They didn't take bands and artists that we wanted to write about seriously, often because they were women. And I have a wonderful quote from Lucy O'Brien here, which was in The Guardian, 2009. Annoyingly, in the women's section, which it wouldn't be in 2018, I hope. Yeah. When I began, NME was a daunting place, not unlike a six-form common room. Star writers inhabited little fiefdoms. Is that the right way to say it? I yes. assume so, yeah. Fiefdoms, fiefdoms, fee five fo fum <laughs> within the office, whether it was Nick Kent and Charles Shah Murray, rest in peace, in the early 70s, or Tony Parsons during punk. As a new writer, you were made aware of the cultural legacy. You might be given a trial run, a few reviews, but if you didn't measure up, that was it. And as a woman, it was doubly intimidating. The general feeling was that you couldn't really write about music. Women didn't have the attitude, the balls, or the knowledge. As former NME editor Neil Spencer said, I tried really hard to get women writers, and when I left, I found out what had been going on. 
As fast as I'd been recruiting them, certain people on the paper had been getting rid of them, alienating them with chauvinist wind-ups. So that's an example of people not, example. not accepting them. Yes. So, for example, when I saw PJ Harvey, uh -huh. it was just immediately one of Nairi's lesbians. And I said, she's going to make the industry a massive amount of money, but she's going to be credible. And for three weeks, I had to spend £2.70 on my travel card to be told to piss off. And I was crying. And in the end, to get it published, and this is by even lovely E.T., because he answers to, to the whole domino effect, I had to get this line in. Even the toughest maker boys will be on their knees about this combination or collision of music. Then it was published. Even our beloved Simon Reynolds, who I've just been boasting about and saying what a thank God he arrived at Melody Maker, his book, The Sex Revolts by Joy Press, which he wrote with his wife, I, God forbid I hate it. It's, it argues that rock music is most thrilling when it is misogynistic and macho. Uh -huh. You know, going by our standardization thing or Dono thing, that that's part of its feature. Yeah. I feel like even they assumed that it was just another one and Irie's lesbian is another example of how making assumptions within music is so bad. Like, for example, if we go back to talking about the, the target audience or whatever, if you assume that's there, then you're just excluding a, a whole new audience that might want to read your blog or, or listen to your podcast. And I feel like that's really detrimental to music journalism as a whole because as you, there's no more gatekeepers and you'll just, just assume they don't want to read the blog so let's not appeal to them at all. Where nowadays I feel like we should move more towards, you know what, let's try and appeal to people who wouldn't usually listen to punk or listen to pop or listen to indie rock or whatever. Which... I think post D, people's ears, even the general punter, their ears were opened up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, it, there is an argument by musicologists that music isn't, um, well, you can tell I've been reading Oliver Sacks' Music Philia, um, that music isn't like a progression. You know, like technology is a progression of yeah. ourselves. Like we wanted. We wanted films, they were then we thought, Oh, wouldn't it be nice with sound or wouldn't it be nice with colour? It's almost like we were led, but music isn't a progression, it's just but it's still so deep rooted. What advice would you give an aspiring music journalism journalist now? Drown everybody in copy like I did. Uh, bring them new artists. Yeah. Uh, make make them stand out. With the, the old opening quote thing, you have to come on the course to learn that. So hook them from the start. Yeah. Um, and I would say go in with either a, um, an opinion piece or a see, I think really a scenes and trends piece. You've got to choose something that an editor will look at even if you're a nobody. Mm -hmm. And especially nowadays because there won't even be freelance work for freelancers who they've had for 20 years. Um, and music journalists talk very negatively about it. So I would say, forget all that negative tosh. Um, you know what's happening in the world. Um, pitch a piece that is down to, it. nobody else could have written it but you. Uh -huh. So a scenes and trends piece about something in your local area, or a new artist profile about one of those bands from the, from the trends piece where there's a hook yeah their dad their dad talked david hockney or some something any kind of hook which yeah. involves hanging out with them which is good anyway because the more bands and the more people you hang out with and the more backlog of interviews you've got as these people filter through there will be that some of them might get press offices or record deals and they will come back to you and they will say you did that interview can you do our biography can you do the sleeve notes for the album can you help us with the press release? This is the bread and butter for a music journalist. It used to be selling your records. Yeah. Now it really is about farming out your work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe writing one piece and writing it for three different publications. So targeting it. So targeting it. So what's the thing that's going to make you stand out? It really is about the writing. And that involves editing, 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 editing. Mm -hmm. so a massive amount of insecurity is quite helpful 
Yeah, and being and being vulnerable. lack of social skills, so you can sit alone in a room for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're all very helpful skill things for a music journalist. And finally, before we wrap this up, is there one piece of writing that you're especially proud of, and the, yeah, the listeners should go and so see? Um, I recommend you buy Everett's book, which is called. It's on Amazon. Uh huh. And it's called 101 Albums You Should Die Before You Hear, Volume One. Uh, edited by Everett True and Lucy Cage. And it is really Everett resurrect, resurrecting his idea that we need to critique again. And he's used old and new writers. In here you will find the middle pages are Neil Kukani. Mm-hmm. Once you're in, you can never get out again. Inescapable. Uh, David Stubbs is in here, who's a, a well-established writer. Um and I've got two pieces in here. One which where I think about um, authenticity mm-hmm. because I love teaching about debating authenticity and what it means and stuff, as you know. Yeah. Um, and so after lectures, I wrote it. Um, and then one about Frank Zappa where, you know, you said if you were 25 again, well, if I had the knowledge... That Zappa piece is what I would have fucking written, and I'm so proud of it. Yeah. Although I would still edit it a bit because we are so insecure. I can't read it now without thinking, oh, I wish I'd take, but you can't because it's in a book. Yeah. Um, and it's actually Rejected Unknown, which is um, an independent publisher's, but it's definitely on Amazon. I recommend that you read that and then throw it away and don't do anything like it. No, I don't mean that. Um, but really, you've got to do about 250 word reviews. Yeah, just keep it short, yeah. snappy, simple. I'll yeah. make sure to link that book in yes. all our socials so people have a link to see that. Perfect. Thank you very much for coming on. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and I hope the, the listeners have too. I've loved every minute on it, and I want to go on stage now, darlings. <laughs> you got the bug. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Actually, I'm a bit nervous. I'm known for, when I did TV, I was like this, ah! And it was a joke. I was introduced as a Sid Barrett, their own Sid Barrett, um, which I thought was a compliment. Now I know it wasn't. They well, thought I was out of it. But it was just I was so ne- when I'm nervous, I'm very bubbly. Well, that's I think that's a good thing. That's how to spot a music journalist. <laughs> they they just when when they're nervous, they speak a lot. Basically, they're very and bubbly, bubbly. Yeah, yeah, and talkative. And otherwise, they're alone in a room for days on end. Well, they've got a lot to say, so. <laughs> They're much more why. confident when they're writing it as well. Yeah. Except perhaps me. I may be the exception. <laughs> and <What>? John Robb. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't get you in, John Robb. John Robb, John Robb. Well, if you've Sorry. enjoyed the podcast, leave a review, a comment, a like, everything, all that jazz. Follow us on Instagram at the underscore right underscore collective, on Facebook and Twitter at TRC Collective. And if you have any suggestions on specific content or people you want on the podcast, email us at trc.therightcollective at gmail.com. Again, thank you very much for coming on and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you, Joe.